So I've been thinking as we've approached this new year, um, just my own personal reflections and meditations on the difference between learning and listening. And, and at first, it's my reflections on my own heart and my own life because I do a lot of learning of Scripture. I'm in it all the time, and it's easy to learn it and not necessarily listen to it. But I've been thinking about those, the difference between the two, and there's, there's a difference between learning and listening. We, we like to learn. Most of us like to learn new things. And, you know, we're surrounded with so much information like no other generation ever before us where we can, we can learn stuff really easy. Like YouTube has become my best friend. Um, I, I can figure out through my best friend YouTube how to, you know, figure out the wiring of a 351 Windsor or how to network my house. Or then there's Google and you can find out almost anything on there. Just the other night we were having a, a friendly family kerfuffle over, over when Christmas Story was, was made. And some said 60s and 50s and 70s and 80s, and my daughter, within like 15 seconds, said, 1983, <laughs> right? Google 1983. Learn something new. And we want to learn the Bible. A lot of people spend a lot of time going to Bible study fellowship and Bible studies and small groups and coming here. There's Bible studies online. There's tools that are, that are, that are they're so numerous you can't even number them. And we, we like to learn the Scripture, and we should learn the Scripture. The Scripture is a big book, and it's filled with a, a diverse, you know, genres of literature, of poetry, and apocalyptic, and letters that are personally written, and so forth. So it, it is something that needs to be learned, and we should be about the, the business of learning the Scripture. And yet at the same time, it seems to me, and this isn't true of everyone, so I'm not trying to overly generalize, but it seems like there's a bit of a disconnect between learning and then going on to listen. Like listening is, is you know, uh, uh, implies a moral responsibility to actually believe and willingly act on or do what is said. And that disconnect between learning the Bible and theology and about God versus listening to it and making every effort of faith to actually follow, submit, and live it out, is it, the disconnect is a, is, a, is, a, is a dangerous one that I've been grappling with. In fact, Jesus gives us this, this, um, this analogy at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. He talks about the dangers of it, right? He says, the wise man's like this, and most of you know the story, but maybe you've never heard it quite with this angle before. The wise man is the one who hears my words, the words of Jesus, and who does them. That is, he isn't just a learner of what I say, he's a, he's a listener and, and an applier of what I say. And this wise man who is both a learner and a listener, or both a, a hearer and a, a doer, well, he is like a man who builds his house on a rock, and when the storms of adversity or judgment come, he stands true. But the foolish man, he says, is a, is a man who is a hearer, he hears my words, he's a learner. But he fails to put it into practice that he doesn't do my word. He's not a, a listener, faithfully asking, how is it that I can now submit my life to this? He says, he's like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, and of course the winds of adversity and judgment come, and, and his house falls down flat, wiped away, showing us the dangerous disconnect between just being a learner of the word versus being a learner and a listener and a doer. 
entering into a new year, I, I just want to challenge us as a congregation, not just to be learners, people who acquire knowledge. Listen, we, we, we could, everyone in this room could memorize the entire Bible. But if we don't listen to its voice, it means absolutely nothing. Is entering into a new year to endeavor not just to be learners, but to be listeners. How is it, Lord, you want me, by faith in what you've done, to live this out? That's just my challenge to this entire congregation, beginning with this message, which really is kind of a, a response to the last four Sundays of Advent, where we have looked at the second coming of Christ as the fulfillment of all four Advent themes, that the second coming of Christ will bring the fullness of hope, the fullness of shalom or peace, the fullness of joy, and of course, the fullness of love when we see him face to face. Well, what now? Well, as I said, this text in front of us precedes, or excuse me, follows one of the texts that we looked at in terms of, of the second coming of Christ. Um, you know, the, the living hope that is imperishable, that is undefiled and fading, that's talked about earlier in 1 Peter, everything God has done to rescue us and the great hope that we have. Well, beginning in chapter, excuse me, verse 13, he draws out the moral implications of it, and he gives us four things. A, a self-perception, like how do we view ourselves as believers in this world, followed by, not followed by, among three instructions or imperatives in the original. So I'm going to start with a self-perception of how, how do we look at ourselves primarily? Do you look at yourself as, well, I'm a staunch American Democrat, or I'm a staunch American Republican, or I'm staunch American, I don't know what I think. Um, how do we view ourselves um, in what world are we putting down roots? And this is where I think um, the Apostle Peter is helpful for us. Right in the middle of this text we're looking at, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He uses that word throughout his letter. He views us as people who are in exile. He's talking to Christians who had converted from paganism, who were living in different countries, saying, Now you're exiles. And that's how you're to view yourself. An exile, by very definition, is someone who is not in his homeland. He's not in his native country, which means he or she no longer quite fits in. He or she no longer quite belongs. And that's how he views them. It's like, now that you have come to Christ and you have, you have worshipped a new king and sworn loyalty to a new king who has given his life for you, and he is bringing his kingdom at some point, now your allegiance is tied to another world and your citizenship is somewhere else, primarily. So you need to think of yourself as an exile here, which means you're going to be different. And I, th I think that's, that's a biblical perspective that we're supposed to have on our own lives, is that I'm actually in exile here. And that is not only a necessary perspective, it's a, it's a, it's a good one to have. We, we shouldn't completely fit in here. I'm not saying there shouldn't be ways we do fit in. I'm saying, like at a deep level, we, we, we shouldn't fit in. We, we shouldn't fit in with everybody at the bunco party, and we shouldn't fit in with all the guys at the ball club. We shouldn't fit in with, with the people at the office entirely. There should be something about us like, I just, I just don't fully connect into this group. That is a good thing. Because there's a definitive, if the Spirit lives in us, and if we are endeavoring to follow Christ, then there is going to be a, a difference in us. Um, now, as I said, I'm not suggesting that we, we become geekishly eccentric. 
you know, like, well, can't go to Starbucks anymore, can't wear Levi's jeans. We need to wear handmade cotton gray dresses all the way down to the ankles and wear prayer shawls and drive buggies and, you know, don't use modern electricity. That's not, I don't think, what he's saying. On a very moral, spiritual level, he's saying you are different and you need to honor that difference and be okay, not just be okay, celebrate the fact that you are different because you belong somewhere else. And why is that perspective important? Self-perspective? Because the world around us, perhaps, just perhaps, more than any other time, wants us as a people to assimilate to it on every level. It does not want us to stand up against the grain. There are ways in which we can bend, and there are other ways where we can't without compromising our allegiance to Jesus. And in a culture that is swirling with changing values and moralities, we have to know I ultimately don't belong here. And I represent a citizenship that is tied to Jesus Christ. And I need to be okay with not fitting in, whether you're a student, whether you're retired, or whether you're at work. That's the perspective. You, does that follow? Yeah. Well, now three commands, imperatives. And let me just say, these imperatives, these commands, these instructions he gives to us are um, based on what has happened in the previous verses. That is, everything that God the Father has worked through the Son and then um, made possible through the Spirit means that these imperatives that I'm about to show you that are in Scripture are practicable. And a denial of the fact that we as people who have the Spirit of God can practice them is the denial of the first part of chapter 1. If we believe God has done all this stuff and has given us a spirit, then you actually can, if you're a believer, make headway in these imperatives, these, these instructions. So, first instruction has to do with hope. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation of Jesus Christ means when he's seen by everybody, that's his second advent, his second coming. We, we experience and we celebrate grace here, grace now. Uh, if you're in Christ, you're already forgiven. If you're in Christ, you're already a son or daughter of God. If you're, if you're in Christ, you already have the promises. If you're in Christ, you know you're fully and completely accepted. And that should, by itself, cause us to sing. But... What we experience now is but a part of what he says is the grace that's yet to come at the revelation of Jesus. That, in the Apostle Peter's mind, is like going to be utterly astounding. And he wants us as a people, as a church, as individuals, to set our hope completely, not partially, not infrequently, but fully on the hope. And that's, that's been part of the, you know, the whole Advent series. It's like it's not supposed to be an appendix at the end of the book. It's like it's where the train is headed, and we need to be fully fixed there. How, how, how do we do that other than just preaching about it? Well, I think we, we nurture a sense of fullness of hope in the way that we nurture a sense of hope in any other realm. When we go on vacation as a family, I have some kids who you know, don't pay attention to the last minute, and other kids who, like, put it on the, the calendar, like, months in advance, and they're like, oh, my gosh, here comes the best vacation ever. 
It's like buying snorkels and masks and getting the outfits and bathing suits, and, and they're talking it up, and it's just showing pictures. Hey, this is the resort we're going to, and everybody's getting excited, and hope starts to rise, and pretty soon everybody's just juiced. Because we have, in informal and formal ways, nourished a sense of hope. And that's something that, at some level, is missing in church culture. It's like, to be able to informal and informal conversations, be able to say, you know, I know life sucks right now, but a better day's coming. And I know you're disappointed now, but a better day's coming because Jesus is returning. I know your body is falling apart and you hate your chronic fatigue, but a better day is coming. Like, those are just informal conversations where we can help people to to set their hope on something in the future, not just the dilapidated present. And not just that, but there's work involved. I mean, he says, preparing your minds for action. The original says, gird up the loins of your mind, if you can think of it that way, for action or for battle. And, and being sober-minded or having a right head about you. What this reminds me of is, is our, our athletes that are about to head to South Korea you know, every one of those athletes who's worth their spit is, has been working long and hard for one event, or maybe two or three, but for one major season of life, and that is the Winter Olympics 2018. And I guarantee you, when they get to South Korea, and even now, they're not going, hey, how about everybody, let's just have a nice big party. Or I think I'm going to spend a couple of weeks before the Olympics start down at the beach. It's like, no, it's like... They know there's work to be done. There's a goal in mind. And so everything is caught up in this final goal. The party comes after. And it recognizes we, we, there's a lot of work to be done, church. There's a lot of service to be done. There's people to be reached. There's people to be loved. There's people to show compassion to. And all of this work is to one great end. And that is the hope that we have set before us. It's that kind of focus and that kind of working mentality that we have to have as a congregation to the end. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy a festive holiday or, you know, celebration. That would deny what the New Testament talks about in terms of celebrating life and celebrating good food and celebrating marriage. But on the whole, we're exiles and our hope is somewhere else. So that's his first instruction. Are you learning this, or are you listening to this? Are you willing to say, all right, it says it right there. I can't get around this. That's not Dan's word. That's right there in the text of the New Testament. That is God's voice speaking to me that I need to, with my brothers and sisters, set my hope fully. Am I willing to say, okay, Lord, you've done all this for me. Help us. Help me. Make decisions each day in my conversations, in my choices, to set my hope fully on the grace to be revealed when Christ is, comes back. It's a good question. Second main command has to do with our conduct of life and the standard by which we carry our lives. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's the negative side. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
The central command is be holy in all your conduct, not just some, not just a church, not just when people are looking, but all the time in all your conduct. On the negative side, he says, don't be conformed to what you used to be. And most of us who have come to Christ later in life, maybe not so much for those who came early in life and didn't have a really dark experience, um, you remember who you used to be. Maybe you were a drinker, you were a player, you were a someone who wanted to make sexual con- conquests or se- sexual discoveries, or maybe you were a workaholic or, or just somebody who was a moralistic person who realized you couldn't hold it together, and when you came to that realization, you knew, I need somebody else. But most of us can remember what our former way of life was. And he's saying, don't ever go back there. Because all of those paths that we took formerly, he says, were ignorant paths because Because at the end of the day, what we try to do when we pursue those things is we're trying to uh, achieve a self-defined salvation or happiness that at the end of the day is like chasing a rabbit down a hole. It's like thinking that somehow if I drink enough seawater, I'm going to find my thirst quenched. And it never works, even though it holds out the allure. Any pursuit in life without God at the center is just going down the rabbit hole. It's just ignorance. You're saying, don't go back. And if you're here this morning and you're one of those believers who experience God and you feel experience salvation, you have slid back. This is something especially, this first part, especially for you. Don't go back there. Those, those impulses and those patterns of life are still calling your name. Don't go back. It's a lie. It's ignorance. But then he goes on to say, as the one who called you is holy, be holy as he is. Our standard of conduct our standard of morality is not defined by our legal system. It is not, this does not originate with Congress. It certainly does not come from the consensus of pop culture. It comes from the standard of who God is, and that never changes. What does it mean to be holy as God is holy? Well, let me just suggest kind of three quick answers that go from narrow to broad. At a very minute level, summarized, summed up, it means a holy life means that God is the highest, most central thing in your life. And second, along with that, that you align your life to his word. That, that, at, at its core, that's what it is, that you are a true worshiper of God only. That means he is the highest, most central thing in your life. And the word that he breathed out here is that to which you align your life. That's, that's holiness. But you could take it a step further and say, okay. It also means, as is true of the character of God, the absence of that which is sinful and the presence of that which is fruitful or good. We tend to think of holiness as simply the absence of that which is bad. It's like, oh, I don't commit adultery or I don't lie or I don't cheat on my income taxes. And some of you might maybe do that? I don't know. Maybe I just, we tend to think of holiness as just that, and it is that. Is There should be, as we grow in life, there should be a, a putting off of, of the, those, those negative, sinful things. The absence of that which is bad. But holiness is also the presence of that which is good. It means that you grow in your sense of love and joy and your, your ability to show compassion and generosity. Signs of a holy life is that you, you're not just holding on to everything and giving a little bit to people. It's like, no, I want to live a generous life. 
in my time and what I give. I'm going to live a generous life. It's not just the absence of the bad. It's also the presence of the good, which defines God's character, abounding in steadfast love and grace and mercy. But you might take it a step farther. It's not just, well, it is at its core. God at the head and the center of your life and his word aligning, being a light for your path. But the rest of the epistle, Peter, if you were to read on, he tells us what holiness looks like in different contexts. If you want to know what it looks like to live in a, uh, a holy life in the context of a human government that's pagan, you can read on in chapter 2. What does it mean to live a holy life under the administration of Obama? What does it mean to live a holy life under the administration of Donald Trump? These aren't new questions. These are as old as time. And the New Testament writers lived under some horrific kings. And they struggled with, how do I live a holy life under a pagan government? Or you want to know how to live a holy life with a bad boss? He answers that too. You want to know how to live a holy life in the context of marriage, even a difficult marriage? He deals with that too. You want to know how to live a holy life in the context of oppression? He handles that too. The rest of the letter, if you will, is an explanation of this is what holiness looks like. That's why his word is so crucial, constantly coming back to it. As a church going into the new year, we just have to be committed to holy living. Are we broken? Yes. And will we be broken until we die or until Christ comes back? Yes. Sometimes, though, I think we allow our sense of brokenness to be an excuse for staying broken rather than moving on and saying, the Lord has given us not a spirit of timidity, weakness, or just brokenness, but a spirit of power to move on and see sin conquered in my life. Do you believe that? So here's the thing. Did you just learn that? Or are you listening to that? Am I listening to this? Tonight, we're all going to have choices to make. You have parties to go to. Are you going to live a holy life? Or not? Not trying to kill the mood. I'm just saying. There's a celebration that's sanctified, and there's a celebration that's not sanctified. And just saying, are we learning this? Or are we listening to this? And the last one, developing a healthy fear of God. He says, and if you call him on on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. There's the third command in the original. Conduct your life with a sense of fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, I want to say right here, this is not a negative thing. When he talks about conduct your life with fear, like the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God and the love of God coexist. Fear of God and joy in God coexist, coexist, rightly understood. You notice he talks about fear of God with two things in mind. Judgment, our Father as judge, and then he also says, knowing that you were ransomed. That has to do with redemption. Judgment, redemption. It's all one sentence, you notice? All one sentence. There's two pieces to this that a Christian has to keep in tension in his head, in in our heart, is the recognition that our Father who is God, who is the Ancient of Days, 
has set a date on the calendar in which every man and woman will rise from the dead and be judged regardless of whether you believed or didn't believe. And at that time, everyone is called out. You know, we live in a world where people like to call out certain sins, you know. A lot of guys are being accused of sexual misconduct, and, and if they've committed these things, and so be it, they should go to justice. But on this day, everyone will be called out. Not a single person will be excluded. And that includes believer and unbeliever, according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. That all of us will stand there on the day of judgment, and, and we will have to give an account for how we lived. That's just the reality. Sometimes I think we don't grasp this piece of the tension of God, our Father, is judge, impartial judge. He judges by the same standard everybody, right? He has his law, and if we've broken it, allegation number one or accusation number one, you know, five counts of lying. Accusation number two, you lusted in your heart. Accusation number three, you treated teenage girls like they were dirt. Boom, 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 boom. And he will list it off, however he will do that. Sometimes, I said, like I said, we, we, we don't grasp that piece, so we're like, hey, I'm forgiven, but I have a cold, so party on, right? I, it's, it, you, if we realize that this piece is still there, our Father is the Ancient of Days who still judges without partiality, it kind of makes you realize, I, I don't want to be flipping about how I live my life, to stand on the day of judgment. The books will be opened, as, as Revelation 21 says. But now if I leave it there, then it's all just bad news, and you're like, man, this sounds horrible. This is that <laughs> Revelation 14. Repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The second part, he says, part of the fear of the Lord is knowing. Is knowing the enormous cost to the Father that we call Father to absolve us and pardon us of all the sin that we will be held accountable for. Right? He says, knowing, part of the fear of knowing God is judged, but in a way that's joyful, in a way that can still love him back and, and not cower, is knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought, you were paid for, and not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, and Peter knew that more than anybody, he was somebody who blew it big time in front of everybody, denying Jesus, and he fell down a couple of other times, I'm sure many, many others, and he knew that he deserved one thing, but he got another thing, and he knew the preciousness of the blood of Christ, not just to him personally, but the preciousness of the blood of Christ to the Father. Now think about that for a moment. What, what is the cost of delivering one sinful man or woman's soul from condemnation? What is the price? Could God place the entire planet Earth on one, you know, the scales, the old scales that tipped? Yeah, actually, young people don't even know what those are anymore. I, I didn't grow up with them either. I just see them in pictures. <laughs> You picture that, and what would one soul of a sinful man or woman, if God put earth on one side, the entire planet, it wouldn't be enough. So let's add on Saturn and Jupiter, the largest of our planets. It still would not be enough. 
if God could somehow compact our entire solar system into a, a space that would fit on a scale that still would not be enough to deliver one single soul from condemnation. If God could package up the weight of the entire galaxy, if he took the entire created order and packaged it up and put it on scale, not a single human soul, he or she, could be delivered. There's only one thing, and it's the most precious thing in the entire realm of God's being. Do you hear that? The entire realm of God's being, before there was ever time, that's precious enough and worthy enough to actually skip the scale. And that is the blood of God himself in the person of his son placed on the scale. And not only does it save one or two, but all who come to faith in his name. Do you see like how precious that is? We, 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 we value and we're careful with things that we know are precious. Our getaway car for our wedding, Deanna and I, was this pristine, amazing, late 50s Chevy truck. If it wasn't for the Chevy, it would have been perfect. <laughs> Back then, I didn't know what I liked. But anyways, beside the point. So my, my father-in-law arranged this, Renner Johnson. He had this friend that was a brand new believer in Christ. And, and this, this guy, like, worshipped this car right, this truck. Never took it out in the rain. Um, I later found out he put like 23 coats of, of lacquer on it. it. He's one of those guys that I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, doubt if a fly landed on it, left a little mark, he'd pull out his thing and wipe it off, right? Like it was his baby. And this is, I am not, there's no exaggeration here. This is his baby. And it was everything my father-in-law could do to say, listen, you're a worshiper of Christ now. You don't have to worship your car, right? So, there for a wedding, you know, he hands the keys of his baby to a 24-year-old punk, right? And I took those keys, and it was, it was a stick shift, and I love stick shifts, but, you know, never know with an old car, and he let me drive it away. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think for one moment, knowing the value of that car, do you think for one moment I squealed the wheels, drove through the mud, or drove through a briar patch? Heck no, because I understood the value of the car. If we understand the value of our redemption. That was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's whole argument that German Christians have lost their sense of the value and the costliness of their redemption. As a result, they no longer fear or live for him. But when we begin to grasp the value of what the Father who will judge the living and the dead gave to set us free, well, then you know what? We're going to be a little bit more careful with how we live, right? I'll tell you, these words speak to me. I hope this morning wasn't just a learning experience. The question is, are you listening? Are we listening? What a great, like, challenge to move into the new year to listen to the heart of God and to set our hope on him and to make him the center of our standard and, and also for him um, to have this healthy fear knowing how much it cost him. And, and we actually have a, a way of sharing and celebrating that this morning, which is the, the bread and the cup. Um, we have communion um, for those who 
either uneducated in the faith or new to the faith. Um, the bread symbolizes the body of Jesus and the cup is blood. So we're taking something that represents the immeasurable, infinite cost to the Father to bring us to himself. And let's, let's take it this morning with that sense not only of gratitude, but awe and even a fearful wonder of what God has done. Um, I'm going to pray, and as I pray, um, if I could have those who are, who are serving come up, you'll be thankful to know I will not be serving today. Um, we have gluten and gluten-free bread. And then on another note, it is the end of the year, and as my wife said, there are highs and there are lows, and there is on each table a vase full of yellow flowers. And those are for those of you who have lost someone recently, and I'm not going to define what recently means if you come with that sense of loss, I just want to encourage you to take a flower. It's a way of you not only remembering, but allowing us to, to remember with you. Just take a flower as a, as a sign of your own remembrance. So I'm going to pray and, and then come forward as you will, if you're a follower of Jesus. Father, I thank you for this time. I too pray, just give us spirit to hear what the spirit says to us, um, not to just be learners. Lord, you love this body, you love these people, and I just pray you continue to do your work of grace in our midst in Christ's name. Amen.